Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined by the wonderful folks on my content team, our writers, editors, and thinkers, Brian Donovan and Ira May. How's it going, y'all? Good. How you doing, Ben? I'm full of pep today. <laughs> our guest today is none other than Amjad Massad, the CEO over at Replit, a company you may have been hearing a lot about during the generative AI boom. And I'm sure you've heard a lot about if you're a software developer who listens to this podcast. As you're listening to this episode, if you enjoy it, we are going to be airing part two afterwards. So if you're listening today on Friday, tune in next Tuesday for the second part. So Amjad, without further ado, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So for folks who have been living under a rock or don't know your full backstory, let's give them the 10,000-foot view. Just really quickly, how did you get into the world of software development and what was your path to becoming CEO at a company? I started kind of messing around with computers really, really young. I was six years old when my father bought a computer. And where I grew up, it was actually very rare to see a computer. I grew up in Amman, Jordan, and that was in 1993. And I it was one of my earliest memories kind of looking at this machine and saying uh like what is this alien species doing here <laughs> right and uh one of my earliest experiences was sitting on a dos terminal and actually watching my father kind of finger type and kind of trying to find his way around the keyboard and i got fascinated it really gripped me almost instantly and um i wouldn't say like i had like a real coding experience until in my early teens when uh, I got like a programming environment because initially it was just MS-DOS and kind of batch right. scripts and things like that. And then uh, I built my first business uh, using VB4. I built this Lang Gaming Cafes. I don't know if you had this trend in the US, but you would go somewhere to play Counter-Strike with friends when the internet was oh, actually yeah. not that great. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I was playing Quake and That's Warcraft right. 2. Yeah. Red Alert. Locally only. Yeah. <laughs> Local area network party. Love that right. stuff. Yeah. Because dial-up was not all that good for uh, for these kind of games, although it kind of worked, surprisingly. So uh, I built this kind of management software for them. That was like my early experience in actually making something useful for other people and getting money for it. And in college, I kind of experienced this problem which turned out to be more universal than I thought at the time, which is when you're trying to do homework or trying to learn programming, setting up the programming environment is actually one of the most daunting things you could do. It's actually <laughs> very boring and very laborious. And you have all these problems with, you know, works in a machine, you send some code to a friend or to the professor, and they can't run it because they're missing independency. Right. And I was like, man, like, you know, I, I use... I used Google Docs at the time, like 2008, nine, and I can like just share these things easily. Why can't I share code? I mean, that's what the browser is made of. You know, I can I should be able to share code, and uh, you know, you can share like a GitHub gist or something like that, but you can share something you could run. So uh, there wasn't anything out there at the time. There was some JavaScript playgrounds, but there was nothing for like Python or anything like that. So I was one of the first people to to kind of do that and built like an open source project where you can run a lot of different languages. And at the time we used Mscripten, which is, it became Wasm. What people know as Wasm today mm -hmm. started as a research project from Mozilla. So I used it to kind of compile Python to JavaScript and Lua, a bunch of languages and put out this playground 
went viral on the internet and it was kind of surreal because you know here i am a kid in in jordan and and i see the inventor of javascript uh tweeting about <laughs> my <laughs> my open source project and nice. that got me a job in the us at, at code academy i was a founding engineer there i came to the us uh, in 2012 i was 24 years old after that i left for stint at, at Facebook. I worked at open source projects like React and React Native at Facebook. And then 2016, I'm like, you know, this like online IDE problem is still not solved. And I, you know, not solved in the kind of way that I want to solve it, which is make it, you know, multiplier by default shareable. And that's when my, actually my partner, my wife and my co-founder now, uh, and I took the first step to kind of starting this company. And it's been somewhat of a long journey since then it really started taking off in 2020 2021 cool yeah i was so interested in a piece of writing on your website where you were drawing a connection between uh, people who are programming today and people who were literate prior to the invention of the printing press and that kind of kicking off more widespread literacy just a very macro question but i was interested like how do you see replit's role kind of democratizing access to coding technology in kind of a similar way. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, you know, that analogy, it's not a perfect analogy, obviously, but the idea is that, you know, before the printing press, reading and writing was something that the priesthood kind of did and no one else did. And it was, in a lot of ways, it was kind of constrained and purposefully kept from the general population. It was seen as something that only elites could do. And when we actually had the decentralization of reading and writing, and now we have universal literacy, it changed the world in fundamental ways. I think it created scientific revolutions and the industrial revolution and democracy and a lot of other innovation, how we live and how we do things. And you can't see it happening without the invention of the printing press and kind of the democratization of reading and writing. I think, uh, you know, Alan Kay, who's a hero in a lot of programming circles, said that the computing revolution hasn't happened yet. And what he meant by that is computers went from these machines that you have to learn to program in order to use them to machines that were mostly made for consumption. In a lot of ways, computers today are more like TVs than actually computers that you know were kind of conceived in mid-last century as kind of thinking partners, as things that kind of really augment our intelligence and so when you think about like, okay, why, why is it like that only a few people can actually use the computers to their full power, which includes programming? And one of the answers is the tools are actually uh, inscrutable and hard to use. I wouldn't go so far as to say it is intentional um, uh, that, that we make our tools hard. But there's a part of it where actually, you know, so some of the criticism we, we, we get at Replit is like we're making things too easy and somehow being hard is, is, is important. You can't let everyone into the priesthood, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be special. It wouldn't be feel special anymore. So our goal from the start is like, okay, make the tools easy. And that meant opening a web browser and starting to code. And since then, we found that everything you try to do with software is harder than it should be. You're putting a website up is really harder than it should be. Why can't you code on your phone? Like large percentage of the population using computers today are just on phones. And so we made a mobile app. I think one of the best mobile apps for coding 
And so it's just really a constant evolution of like, okay, how do you make this more accessible, more learnable, and more fun, frankly, to use? Well, to follow uh, Era's high-minded question with uh, more more than nitty-gritty, I want to you know talk about the challenges of doing a real-time multi-user browser. You know, I'm a big fan of Google Docs here. It's such a nice experience, but I remember uh, our former uh, chief product officer, Teresa Dietrich, telling a story about when she was at AOL and introducing the, the sort of three dots in an AOL chat and having that crash the system with all the sort of pingbacks. Mm. So what are the sort of technical challenges with having everyone editing at once? You know, that's a very important question that I get rarely asked because it took us like perhaps five years to actually get it to work well. So Google Wave, you know, I'm probably dating myself here, but like Google Wave was this project that ended up dying as, as most uh, Google projects do. But uh, it, uh, it was actually... RIP, one of the greats. Too soon. Yeah. It's actually hard to describe what it was, but in some capacity, it was kind of a real-time social network plus some tools on top of that. And they invented this uh, format called uh, operational transforms. So operational transforms allows you to do efficient text manipulation in real time in a, in a sort of a multi-party system. So when I type a you know, word in my text editor or letter, instead of sending the entire content of the text editor, uh, you send just the diff. You just say at location XYZ, I'm making the letter change uh, or a delete or an insert or whatever. The added benefit of that is you can do reconciliation between uh, different editors. So, you know, all programmers have experience with, uh, with diffs, right? Because we use them in GitHub. Diffs is one sort of asynchronous way of handling conflicts. And it's actually very laborious to, to kind of handle conflicts in Git. But in real-time updates, this protocol actually has built-in heuristics to handle conflicts. Now, it turns out that our problem is a lot harder than Google Docs because in Google Docs, you have a single server. That's the source of truth. And you have clients connected to the server. It's a client-server architecture. With Replit, you have clients, but you also have the computer itself that could potentially do edits. So I could write a program, and that program is editing a file. Humans can be editing a file, but also the program could be editing a file. And now AI can be editing a file. So you have a multi-agent system. And the interesting thing about it is like, you can write a bug, and the computer might crash because you're actually writing code in that computer that's also handling the... Um, sort of the marriage conflicts and all of that stuff. And so it becomes a distributed system challenge. You have multiple sources of truth. You have the file system, you have the editor, you have multiple kinds of editors. And so, you know, it made the operation transform problem way, way harder. Uh, now there are innovations like CRDT. You know, Figma famously was built with CRDTs and a few other. There are a lot of things that makes it easier, but we had to go the, the hard path. And we ended up in, in our own sort of domain kind of really improving and making operation transform a lot more robust uh, and easier to handle. And it took a while, you know, we, um, for a while, and it's been buggy and, and all of that, but kind of we nailed down all the edge cases and now it works super well. Sweet. So from Ira's question, you know, I got this idea of wanting to further democratize access to computers and the ability to code and create with them, not just, you know, watch videos and play games. 
And when Ryan asked his question, luckily you said the magic word and brought up AI agents that might be working alongside you. So I think Replit's been sort of at the forefront of offering up, you know, coding assistance. Tell us a little bit about the ones you've been building, um, you know, what they do, what you're excited about. And then I would love to like explore maybe the pros and cons because, you know, we're talking about how like people don't want to make the tools too easy. You know, I can now use natural language and have something whip up code for me, address the errors for me and create a program for me without having done my CS basics, you know, and maybe not, not really operating from first principles very well. So tell us about what you've been building at Replit and then, yeah, maybe how you see, you know, sort of the opportunities and challenges in that space. Yeah. So, you know, I, I first started thinking about call it statistical approaches to code synthesis since my code academy days, because we had to do a lot of work on uh, correcting code for people, helping people code and all of that. I mean, I always thought that the classical approach of parsing, creating a parse tree, traversing that parse tree, and having some heuristics and logic around that was too laborious. And, and maybe there's a learned type of system that could do that. I played around with different language modeling techniques before Transformers. One technique actually had some interesting capabilities is ngrams. You could actually model code using ngrams. There's a paper that you know, it's now sort of a classic paper in 2012 saying on the naturalness of software. It has this one of those iconic titles. And it talks about how we can use natural language processing techniques to, to model code. Uh, so it's been always on my mind. It never really, you know, worked super well. I think around GPT-2, I just started seeing glimpses of, okay, this thing actually can generate coherent code. was still not that great, but GPT-3 kind of showed the potential. Actually, the system we ended up building at Replit looks more like GPT-2. It is a 3 billion parameter code model that kind of helps you do autocomplete, um, you know, edits code, corrects code, you know, things like that. We still also use providers such as OpenAI for some of the larger model piece that we have. But today we have the you know, autocomplete feature. As you're typing code, maybe you're familiar with Copilot or the Gmail autocomplete. It shows sort of this ghost text. This is basically the AI predicting what you might want to type. And I think about it as less an AI, more like a, like a typing aid in a way, because you're still driving. You know, they call it co-pilot because you're still the driver. It is something that is kind of, you know, maybe looking over your shoulder and giving you suggestions about what you might want to do next. But then there's the other more interesting interaction, which is generating entire files, um, making large edits on files, even building entire features and writing entire unit tests. And this is where a lot of people are using chat models. And the good thing about chat models is you can talk to them purely in natural language. As opposed to the more co-pilot interaction, which you're typing code and it's completing the code, you can actually give it instructions like you are talking to a coworker. And so right now we have two modalities there. One is that you can highlight code and right-click and edit or right-click generate. You can do contextual actions on the code editor itself, or you can talk to a chat model, or you can go back and forth between these two things because it has context. And so these are the two modalities that we have today. We think like the more agentic type behavior where you can ask the AI to build an entire feature are coming down the line. We're building the infrastructure for it. I think the models need to be a little more powerful for that to work. By next year, I would expect us to be uh, to see a lot of products coming out with more sort of coding agents. In terms of the, your question about the trade-offs, that's a very important question that doesn't get enough airtime. 
you know, what does it do to, you know, the student's ability to learn how to code? Well, and then the other related question is like, how do you actually know for sure that the code is doing what, what it's supposed to be doing, right? And this is right. similar to the open source problem, like mm. NPM installing left pad and then left pad, you know, <laughs> <laughs> taken over by hackers. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, people had already outsourced a lot of this to NPM or to copy paste from Stack Overflow, yeah. to your point. Mm -hmm. So you always want to be, you know, in the loop, trust and verify. But I think if a year from now, you know, one engineer or product manager is asking for a feature and getting it the next day, what does that mean for the students who want a job as a junior engineer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think we're going to get to a point where you can disintermediate software engineers and for a product manager or designer to completely rely on agents. At least I don't see it for a decade. Like, it's really hard to see that happening. Uh, the reliability, the hallucination problem, all this stuff is really unsolved and no one has any idea how to solve it. That's the reality of the situation. And that's the fundamental problem with neural networks is that we don't know how they work. Like one way to think about neural networks is it is an algorithm that searches for other algorithms, right? So GPT-4, GPT-4 as a network is a set of algorithms that are totally opaque to us. We don't know actually what, what they're doing. And therefore, we can't trust them. And you need to verify, right? And so there will always need to be a software engineer that is actually verifying and looking at the code. And, you know, if, if you're a junior engineer, I would definitely learn the basics. I would probably code without an AI for a little bit. I would probably just learn the computer science basics as much as possible. But I would really learn how to use AIs and how to leverage them to become more productive. That's going to be the expectation when you enter the, yeah. the job market is that, you know, there's going to be pressure on you being a lot more productive than the previous generation of, of engineers. <laughs> totally. I, I think, yeah, it's going to be like, if you didn't know Git coming in at this point, you know, you'd be in a lot of trouble. I feel like that's, right. that's going to be the same for AI. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I wanted to ask a little bit about your the manifesto and like what the purpose was of, of putting together like a Replit AI manifesto. I mean, obviously, we've talked a little bit about how like, you know, practically you're thinking about it. But why did you feel like it was important to sort of articulate that stance with is it Michelle, your VP of AI? How did you guys come to write that come to put that together? Yeah, so the larger context is what we're seeing in other players in the market and how they're talking about AI, you know, OpenAI and Thropic and others are on the record kind of saying they want to build AGI. They want to reach human level performance and they want to automate away a lot of jobs and, and things like that, which is okay, great. I mean, that's a great mission to, to go after. At Replit, like in our DNA, we care more about intelligence augmentation than artificial intelligence in a way. We want people to just be more productive. The reason we built Replit is because we want people to learn like programming so that it can affect their life in a, in a positive way. We're less interested in full automation. We're more interested in you know, helping people get the work they want to get done. So in that manifesto, we talk about ADI, so we coined a new, a new term, uh, artificial developer intelligence. So instead of artificial general intelligence, what we're saying is we want to create an AI that is tuned to the needs of the developer. And we thought that was like a novel thing that no one is really talking about. And most of the talk is about how do you automate software engineers. And instead, what we're saying, no, we want to empower software engineers. And it was hard to kind of 
put out a flag and just say, if you're interested in more augmentation, you should come work for us. Uh, and second is just to start a conversation around that, around how we can do that, how other players can be involved, how open source uh, folks can also be involved in this. And we've gotten really great reception. We've got a lot of people that are really more mission-oriented to kind of apply and, and want to work for us. They're on Team Human, so they want to yeah. stick with you. Yeah, I, I don't I don't want to draw like black and white, kind of us versus them. I do think that you know ultimately even those big labs really care about humans, obviously, and human flourishing. But I do think that maybe inadvertently they don't really understand the full extent of like what they're talking about. But I think the more concrete goal uh, should always be of any company is to how do you help your customers become more productive and serve them better rather than automate them. Yeah. All right. So this time of the show, we usually shout out a Lifeboat badge winner, but there isn't a new Lifeboat today. So thanks to Mac Expat for answering the question, how do I install a Linux package in Replit? Oh, nice. We've got two accepted <laughs> answers here and we've helped over 300 people. So thanks, Max. Awesome. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes for anybody who's listening and is curious. As always, I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on X if you want to shoot me a DM. You can hit us up, podcast at Stack Overflow with questions or suggestions for the show. And if you enjoyed the program, leave us a rating and a review because it really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. That's at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to get me uh, in my DMs on X, the uh, DMX, <laughs> I'm at Arthur Donovan. My name is Ira. I'm also on the editorial team at Stack Overflow, write for the blog, write the podcast show notes, and I am on social media most places at Ira Maybe. My name is Amjad Massad. I'm CEO and co-founder of Replit. Go to replit.com to check it out. It's very easy to sign up and start coding. I'm also most places at Amasad, A-M-A-S-A-D, you know, GitHub. Uh, X is so strange to say X, but uh, at least there's like a lot of opportunities for puns here. <laughs> but yeah, on yeah. X slash Twitter. <laughs> I like it. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As a reminder, Tuesday of next week, we will have part two. So if you enjoyed the conversation, please share it out on social media and then come back and join us next week for the second half. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>